Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the language of two worlds, what we can learn from the language used by people as they are dying. My guest is Lisa Smart, who is author of Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We Are Nearing Death. She is also the founder of the Final Words Project, which she is engaged in with the support of Dr. Raymond Moody, psychiatrist, philosopher, and author of the bestseller Life After Life. She has a master's degree in linguistics, and one might say that this study is opening up a whole new area of research. Once again, this interview is being conducted via the internet, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Hello, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you for making time available for me. Yeah, I'm very excited to uh, engage in this interview, and the reason for my excitement is that I've been in touch with quite a number of people in the parapsychology community who find your work quite exciting because you're you're opening up a whole new area that, to my knowledge, uh, has never really been examined uh, before. It's great to be here, and it's exciting to be a trailblazer. And for me, when I saw and heard my father's experience at the end of life and and the language he spoke, I knew this was something I just had to pursue. You were with your father uh, for many weeks uh, at the time of his death, and you uh, were puzzled by the language that he used, but you made a point of, I suppose, dealing with your grief over his illness by recording everything he said. That's exactly true. My father and I shared a love and connection around language, and that's partly why I studied linguistics at UC Berkeley. And one of the ways I've learned to deal with many feelings and reflections and, um, well, suffering has been around language. It's a way for me to try to make sense of the world. So when I heard my father's language as he was dying in in those last three weeks, I was at first perplexed and, of course, grief-stricken because I was very close to my father. But I was also intrigued as I began to write the words down and I I thought that I was entering into another way of thinking and seeing the world. And when my father started speaking about angels, then I was very stunned because my father was an absolute skeptic and I would have never imagined such words would come from his mouth. He he talked about angels. He also talked, as I recall, about something he referred to as the green dimension. This is true. And, and I was puzzled. And yet, now that I've done more research into final words, Green comes up a lot um, in people's references, and we hear about landscapes unfolding on the walls or on people's, um, you know, windows and so forth beyond what we see with, you know, an ordinary reality. So um, green and the dimension seems to 
reoccur in final words. And one of the other areas that you and Raymond Moody have in common is an appreciation for different degrees and types of what we... Uh, commonly call nonsense. It's actually much more sophisticated than people appreciate. It's so true, because when you look at language, especially language that's connected to transcendental experience, you see things that oftentimes we see paradoxical language. For example, in koans, what's the sound of one hand clapping, right? I mean, technically, that's nonsense. And yet, we know that those kinds of nonsensical phrases can bring on certain states of consciousness that literal language, such as pass me a cup of water, please, you know, can't do for us. And we also know that when people speak about near-death experiences, their language is nonsensical and paradoxical. So, for example, you might hear someone uh, who's had a near-death experience who might say, I've never felt as alive as when I was dead, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. that's pure nonsense. That's pure nonsense. And yet, as human beings, it seems that paradoxical experience is as much of who we are as literal and uh, intelligible experience mm-hmm. in languages. Now, in this particular instance, the example that you used, I never felt as much alive as as when I was dead. (laughs) It's nonsense from one frame of reference, but from a different frame of reference, it might make perfect sense. Well, we know that nonsense has a lot to do with frame of reference. So, for example, if I said to you, uh, you know, if I said to you 60 years ago, I'm going to the ATM, to get some cash, people would have looked at you cross-eyed. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> However, now, of course, that's part of our culture and our context. So, so much has to do with context. Mm-hmm. And so, part of what I've been intrigued by in this language is that there's maybe a lot of context that we don't have. So, that the language that we may hear from our dying beloveds, that may sound like nonsense, may actually be language that's decontextualized. We don't have the whole picture. Decontextualized, uh, meaning that we uh, who are hearing the language don't know the actual context. And I think what you're getting at here is that as people are dying, they are flitting back and forth between two different worlds or maybe even uh, their consciousness is in two different worlds simultaneously, and so their language is a reflection of that. The transcripts that I've received show that very clearly. There are so many examples. So, for example, someone might say as they're dying, um, get me the ladders from outside, and there are real ladders outside, and then they say, because I need to go up there and point up. Right. So we see I call those hybrid sentences. Uh, Get me a camera for for those who might be older who used to use cameras. Get me the camera. I want to take a picture of this. Well, what's that this? Right. So we hear again, I call them hybrid nonsense because there's one foot in this world and another foot in another world. One word example that was so powerful. This came from a minister. He explained that one of his congregants was said, I need to write down a list of everybody coming to the big party, the big party that's coming up. And then when he looked at the list, everyone on it were people who had passed on. Mm. Right? So that was a very powerful example of being in two, in two realities simultaneously. And it's also one that convinced me that something exists beyond this threshold 
uh, because I was not, uh, you know, a quote, a believer when I started this research. I was open-minded, but I certainly did not come into this research with a agenda. You know, I had no idea or agenda that about this material until I became fully immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Well, when we refer to um, an afterlife or another world, uh, it could be thought of metaphorically as a state of mind or as uh, what we imagine the afterlife to be. I don't know that uh, your research would prove the existence of yeah. an afterlife, but it, it would be if if one wants to accept the idea of the afterlife as a real place, let's say that exists in hyperspace, uh, your work would be consistent with that. Yes, and also we have, I think we know so little about consciousness and uh, we know so little. So it could be it could just be expanded consciousness, not that there's any other place, because we know that time and space does not exist for NDE. You know, people come back from NDEs, don't talk. They say there is no time and space. So in terms of mapping it, I would never, ever say that I know what the map looks like. But I do know that the map is different than what we are accustomed to in this reality. That's all I know. And the language the language is compelling because it it suggests that something else is going on beyond what we know. There's the uh, issue of the hybrid language, but you've gotten into many, many other, uh, I guess I'd call them linguistic formalities that you have mm-hmm. uncovered in uh, this. What you, what you did, I guess we should lay it out a little bit more for our viewers. You collected uh, hundreds of stories uh, that were recorded, that is written down, presumably, by family members uh, when their loved ones were dying. Yes, and from some interviews, but mostly from transcriptions, yes. Mm-hmm. And I understand that originally you thought you could put a tape recorder at the bedside <laughs> while people were dying, and, and that didn't work out too well. No, you know, that trained as a linguist, you know, you have your recorder handy and you just put it in front of everyone. So I, I learned a lot about that in the process, indeed, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the ethical considerations. Can I I'll share one quick story about that? My grandmother, when she was dying, pulled me to her bedside and uh, very confidentially, privately told me that I was her favorite grandchild. And um, and I was, of course, honored. And we have so much in common. And it was sort of our shared secret, a very special moment before she passed on. But then um, six months later, I was taking a walk with two of my cousins. And I found out she said the exact same thing to both of them as well. Right. So so to have taken away that sacred moment for her with a digital recorder to me would have been um, now that I understand it. I don't want to say criminal, but it would have been it would have been unethical. And, mm-hmm. and that was partly what I learned from you know going to formal IRBs and speaking to people and you know, shifting gears from being a linguist to uh, broadening my approach in, in researching this field. So, um, yeah, I learned my lesson. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the standard skeptical uh, 
approach to to the question of visions that people have as they are dying is that uh, it's sort of pathological. It's like the brain is deteriorating and uh, people hallucinate and they get confused. And that's why you get all of this nonsense language and unintelligible talk. And uh, that's sort of the conventional skeptical account of things. But you've brought to bear some very important arguments uh, why that isn't actually the case. Yeah, um, there's several reasons why I do not think that is the case. Um, there are instances where certain medicines will indeed uh, result in delirium, you know, delirium. There's no doubt about that. However, um, that's different than the visionary state in which uh, this a lot of language is produced. So here's an example. I noticed through the transcript something I call the sustained narratives. So, for example, someone two weeks before uh, that person dies begins to talk about the train at the station just one night. Now, if you took that in isolation, they'll be like, oh, my God, what is that? Talking about a train at the station, that makes no sense, right? The next day, the train is getting, you know, a little closer to where I'm standing, now, that in isolation seems like craziness, or what's dad talking about? But when you see over a period of time, the person every night, the train is getting closer, the door is opening, he's taking out his, his luggage or whatever, and you see a story over time, you think, how the heck is a brain that's dying, that is being you know, theoretically disabled, it's a dying brain, right? How is it able to maintain this story, which is a metaphor about traveling on or, or going somewhere? And so sustained narratives to me were one of the most compelling things I saw because just that we are able to care. I mean, I could not tell you something I said two weeks ago, mm. right? So there is a story that people are have in their mind that they're tracking. So that was, that's one thing that I found found very convincing. And also people are talking to people in very real and lucid ways. And nurses that I discussed this with said there are difference between hallucinations and visions. Mm. With visions, it seems that people can move in and out. As you had mentioned before, there's a kind of, you know, they can go back and forth with them where hallucinations don't have that same quality. Mm-hmm. So what I heard from my health professionals is that the hallucinations have a very a different quality than the visions. And the language also that is during more um, uh, visionary processing are different than, uh, than what can happen with meds up to a point. Because we also see some of these patterns, just like with NDEs, occurring across meds, medications, and illnesses. Mm -hmm. But where we've just begun is we really need to ferret these things out. There are things to me that are very clear. Um, Steve Jobs, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, right before he passed on. That kind of, uh, we call that epizuxis, the repetition of three phrases or that occurs a lot in people's dying language. Um, is that just coincidence? I have an instance here. I just got this one, and I love it. Um, I thought it was so great. Um, she was just she was um, in a coma, came up from the coma, and said, "I am, I am, I am the great I am." 
and then she died. Came up for the coma, said these things, and then died. Something like that is very compelling to me, and I, we don't have all the answers, but it's very compelling. Well, well, you're bringing up a whole other area now, I think, <laughs> that, that I would call terminal lucidity. Oh, yeah. Where, where, I mean, if this is a person who was in a coma, you wouldn't expect them to speak at all, would you? No, and this was another finding, but I'm not, other researchers have found this, but I found it through the language. Mm -hmm. There is this, and, um, and there's more and more research done in this area because it's so interesting. Terminal lucidity refers to this period of time um, soon before someone dies where there's a, a window of time where they're lucid. Um, and there's varying degrees of dramatic instances of this, um, there are several cases of people that are in coma, as, as that one. And, for example, one woman was in a coma five hours before she passed on. She got up. There was sort of a light around her, too, kind of a, uh, I don't want to quite say illumination, but she seemed kind of brightened. You know how if you're happy or something, kind of brightened. And she said, um, tell everyone I'm okay and that I love them. Mm. And those are the kinds of things. Now, when we, in those moments of terminal lucidity, in my sample, and there might, you know, we may learn more, but for now, you don't hear someone say, what a crappy husband you've been. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't hear negative. You hear these very aspirational kinds of phrases generally. And I've had one person that was so dramatic, and he's a very reputable personal person. I knew, I knew him for years. I worked with him. His mother had uh, uh, Alzheimer's for several years. Then she fell into a coma. And then she came up from the coma, I think it was two days before she passed. She looked at him and said, I want to tell you where all the financials are so that when I pass away, and she said they were in the third drawer down, like this very specific instruction. He couldn't believe it. He had not heard that lucid a statement from her in years. And then she went back into the coma and passed. I, I believe I don't have it, the account in front of me, but I believe it was two days later. That to me was the most astonishing and dramatic one. But there are so many cases of just people coming up and saying, um, a one that was so powerful is, it's not what you think. The person said, they got, they were in a coma, got up, looked at his partner, and said, it's not what you think, <laughs> and then fell back in. So um, I certainly don't think I can explain what the mystery is, but I can certainly tell you that there is one. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, back to um, the story of the train that that you mentioned yeah. earlier. That's a metaphor, really, and there are many metaphors uh, for death going back to the ancient people of a journey that you have to, like the Greeks said, you have to cross over the river Styx. The the ferryman will come to take you over to the other side, or I have to go across the River Jordan. There there are a lot of metaphors that we find in in mythology. Uh, and I presume they also come up spontaneously in the language that people use. They absolutely do. And I'm not the first to discover or talk about these. Um, Maggie Callanan and Patricia Kelly in their book, Final Gifts, they were two hospice nurses, did a beautiful job of illustrating these kind of metaphors. And then I found them, too, in our research. People talk a lot about journeys and um, and. I just received one of my first cross-linguistic samples, which is my wish for the program that we get more from other languages, from Punjabi. 
And this woman's uh, father talked about the plane that he was waiting for to take him. So we often hear, um, you know, that's the modern day sticks <laughs> yeah. when we start talking about airplanes. But um, these, one of the most prominent things we see is people are talking about needing their passport. One of the accounts that I gathered was from a chaplain, and she was working with a gentleman who was saying, I gotta find my passport, I gotta find my passport. And the hospice professionals were confused. It's like, sir, you're not going on a trip, you're not going on a trip. And she was like, yes, he is, because she brought the perspective, obviously, of this chaplain. And she engaged in this beautiful conversation with him about, tell me what you need that passport for, sir. I gotta go to that other country, I gotta go to that other country. Of course you do. You know, so she engaged in this beautiful conversation and brought him great peace when she told him that we think we found the passports. And he was like, yes, I think I have. So, and also people talk a lot about home. And I just had a conversation with someone who works with Alzheimer's patients. And I also read an article that really paralleled this. People who are more in the in Alzheimer's, or I should say de dementia in general, often refer to home, but it's in the past. They refer to childhood home. However, what happens when it's end-of-life language, they seem to be talking about a future home, which is a more spiritual home. It's, I'm, I mean, this is, I'm just new in looking at this, but I think there might be a distinguish, uh, a distinction in um, the language of dementia and the language of end-of-life, but I'm just beginning to look at that. But, but the metaphor of travel is one of the most prominent that, that occurs. Mm -hmm. Naturally, a lot of people who are old and are dying will have dementia <laughs> as they're dying. My mother did, my grandfather did. Uh, but people who are experiencing dementia may also be experiencing the same double world phenomena. No, I'm so glad you mentioned that. There does seem, and I mean, I'm so in the, just beginning to, to crack this nut, right? But it, there is overlap, and there also seems to be a transition that when people get closer to dying, these patterns become much more pronounced. However, I worked with um, some folks at an assisted living center, and what they found is if they track the metaphors of each of their um, uh, residents there and put it in their charts, then they were to create much better rapport with people because we all have different metaphors that represent our life stories. So, for example, Jeffrey Holder, who is a dancer, well, obviously dance and all the metaphors associated with that were critical to him. So as he was dying and taking his last breaths, he said to his son, one, two, three, turn. I can't remember the exact things, but he used dance metaphors as he was taking those last steps as he was moving moving on or transitioning or dying, however you want to map it. So what happens is that we bring the metaphors of our lives to end of life. Um, so going back to the assisted living center, different people had different stories and metaphors that were related to what mattered to them. We got a, I got a, um, transcription a couple months ago uh, from someone whose brother was involved in cell phone 
um, sales. He sold cell phones and uh, cell plant, you know, cell phone plans and so forth. And the last few words he was saying to her had to do about how the plan was ending. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the minutes were <laughs> the minutes were ending, or something to that extent. So, in the same way, in assisted living as well as at end of life, if we're really highly attuned to the way people are mapping their lives. Um, and the metaphors they use, we can get much better rapport. And metaphor is not literal language. You know, my experience of love may be a box of chocolates. Your experience of love may be an open field with daisies. So, so for the things in life often that don't have very literal connections, like teacup to cup or tea, um, like love, so much of life is not literal. And that's when language and metaphor becomes more rich and, and more complex and also more subjective, one could say. So, yeah, so metaphor is important in all phases. And metaphor is important right now, right? I mean, I love when people uh, speak in metaphors to me and they connect with me because of the metaphors they use with me. Your work looking at linguistic analysis of the words that dying people use could equally well be applied to people experiencing dementia or people mm -hmm. experiencing a, a psychotic break or schizophrenia or any number of different altered states of consciousness that by studying the linguistic patterns of people in those states, we might be able to understand something deeper about the state itself and what distinguishes, uh, for example, d uh, dementia from schizophrenia. Yeah, it's a great point. And that's why, indeed, the door has opened so wide because there's so much to do. But what um, to me is so critical is Raymond Moody's work. He is known for his near-death experience, shared-death experience work. He is not known for his first degree, which was a PhD in philosophy, where he studied unintelligibility. And what he did is he began to classify different types of nonsense. Because most of us just invalidate nonsense. We have not studied nonsense seriously. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> but what, why Raymond, to me, has, first, obviously, it's been an honor to work with him for the last you know, five, six years. But what makes him uh, so brilliant to me is that who would have thought of such a thing that there would be sense and nonsense? And part of his understanding and curiosity about unintelligibility is what led to some of his uh, insight into the near-death experience, because he heard these people coming back after having died, and then they were resuscitated, speaking in these nonsensical and metaphorical terms, such as, I left my body and was on the ceiling. Nonsense, right? Or, you know, I never felt as alive as I was, you know, as I was dead, as I mentioned. But instead of just dismissing that, as so many people did, because they were so tied to literal language, Raymond understood the power of unintelligible language and knew that it had its own valid uh, reality and human experience. And he began to write these things down. And also as a clinician, obviously, and a philosopher. Or he tracked these things. But language was one of the critical keys that Raymond um, saw in, again, unlocking, unlocking this door. But um, there is so much to do. There is, from what I've seen, but this is very preliminary, certain differences indeed between the language of dimension and of life. Um, 
And if I live long enough, <laughs> I would love to begin to really discern what those are. Because I, I and I haven't worked with schizophrenia, but it was one of the way, one of the first things I began to look at was the language of craziness. I, hate, I don't even want to use that word, but that, but it, but you know, the language of mental difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even hesitate to say illness. Um, but but yes, yes, I think you're, the point is very well taken. Well, Raymond has uh, identified, I believe, uh, more than 80 different distinct types of nonsense. And each type of nonsense follows its own rules, I gather, that uh, they break certain rules, which is why we call them nonsensical, but then they need to follow other rules uh, so that they don't descend into pure gibberish. Well, see, that's the thing that's remarkable is that you can only know something is nonsense by knowing what the sense is. So nonsense is he call, is supervenient on. So what? Let's see. So you have to know what makes sense to know what not makes sense. Nonsense can only exist to the point that it violates the rules of the language, yeah. right? So in a way, you could even argue it's a more sophisticated form of language. Because nonsense itself has to uh, operate by knowing what is sensical to therefore not be sensical. Does that make any sense? (laughs) You you know, the very word nonsense strikes me as as fascinating because if you take it literally, it means things that you can't touch, taste, see, hear, or smell that are not part of your senses, which is your entire inner world. uh, but usually the way people use it, they don't mean it that way. They mean uh, it, it's not logical to them. But every system of logic that we know of depends on uh, a priori assumptions that they're based on and <laughs> that are usually never questioned. So logic itself is uh, is kind of a, uh, a weak platform to stand on. Every Every logical system depends on some unquestioned assumption. That's ex- ex- exactly right. I yeah. agree. And and we know that people's experiences with near-death experiences, there's a, a, a different type of awareness. So, for example, Dr. Kenneth Ring, who's one of the NDE researchers, did research on people who were blind, who had near-death experiences. And when they left their bodies, and could, they could actually, 80% of them, could look at and they can, could see the person on the bed below. These are people, uh, the majority of them, I want to say 80% of those uh, were blind by birth, okay? So they ne- didn't have that. Um, however, when they explained the way they saw their body, it wasn't quite the way we think of as vision. And they talked about it as transcendent awareness. So when you think about nonsense, it's a different kind of sense, possibly. And so, um, I, you know, just in response to what you said, we are making certain assumptions about what awareness is, and that when we're looking at transcendental consciousness, it may involve a whole different set of mm-hmm. sensory experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, as a linguist. You would be, there are many, many factors that a linguist can look at uh, besides uh, the metaphors and the grammar. Uh, one feature that you paid attention to, I believe, is the rhythm of the language. 
Yes, and especially through um, uh, repetition. It's just repetition. I mean, we use repetition all the time in our life, but it, certain things occurred at a much higher frequency um, in the samples that I received. So do you hear that music? It's so beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. It's so beautiful. Or the left side, the left side, the left side. It's just like you described to me, but more beautiful. Oh, more, more, more worlds and worlds and worlds and more worlds. Those are each from different people. I'm happy, I'm happy. Um, one is, go away, go away. I'm not ready yet. But a lot of it's intensified, what I would call intensified language um, is expressing. But it's very also rhythmic. I mean, the, the repetition has a very rhythmic quality, of course. I, as I recall... Uh, from your book, you talked about how when you were a child, your father would sing lullabies to you. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about the whole process by which children acquire language skill. And now at the end of your father's life, mm-hmm. uh, you are listening to his final words. There's almost oh. a, like a reversal going on. But it, it brought to mind how... Uh, your early experience as a child of hearing those lullabies from him. Yes, it's so, uh, you, you got right to the heart of something so personally important to me. You know, my connection to my language to my father was very much about the, sat, the rhythm of it, you know, almost the poetry, because poetry is distinctive for its rhythmic quality, right? That's part of what song, lullaby, and we know with people who do have dementia, Alzheimer's, oftentimes we can make these kind of connections uh, through music. Is people can remember things that they can't recall just through language. So sound and rhythm um, is so powerful. And my father and I definitely, at the end of life, connected uh, through poetry. One point he said to me, um, I said, how are you doing, Papa? He said, I see interim spaces of poems. And I just, that seems almost like I hear the sound of one hand clapping. It's got that same kind of quality to it. That, and, and that's the kind of language that often emerges at the threshold that if we listen to it, it can really have a beautiful quality. And we can share with our loved ones kind of the intimacy that we can share when we're singing lullabies to our children. And I mean, just when my father said that, I could have said, oh, Dad, you know, what are you talking about? You're crazy. It's the meds. Or I could have just taken a deep breath like I did and listened and said, yeah, they are the interim. You know, I mean, I could say, I could respond to him. And, and and as I did it as a child before I had the language. So, mm. and and I gurgled and <laughs> delighted. You know, and the more we can be open to the range of language and not be afraid of what we hear. I mean, I think what's so hard is, you know, when our loved ones, when the language shifts and we're used to having certain kinds of conversations with people, it's scary often to hear the language shift. But if we can imagine that at all phases of our lives, language can connect us. And all we need to do is make those subtle adjustments, maybe not always subtle, but somewhat subtle, and, and engage in listening deeply to them. And um, and in some cases, the sacred is not, you know, what I call the sacred, is not too far beyond what we hear from our loved ones as they're dying. That is very profound, and and I think that's very important advice for people who are 
grieving or who are caring for somebody who who is dying because naturally in, in those moments you want to be uh, connecting you want to have a, a moment of intimacy or or many moments of int- intimacy as somebody is uh, you know preparing for a, com- a journey <laughs> from which they will not return and uh People are, it's an awkward time for many people because if you're a caretaker, you're busy handling many, many physical details and you're not necessarily able to notice the nuances and subtleties. But you're, you're suggesting that if we pay careful attention to the language of the dying, we can sort of enter into their experience uh, in a healthy way. I do. I am suggesting that indeed. (laughs) I am. No, it is true. And just like with our children, I mean, if you think about, I mean, you mentioned earlier on both sides of the spectrum, um, you know, if your child comes up to you and says something nonsensical or there's a giant rabbit standing next to them, but you don't see a rabbit, you don't say to them, oh, I mean, hopefully you don't say to them, you know, you're crazy. That's not true. And, and, and we know Milton Erickson talked about he worked with people who had schizophrenia and so forth from some of what I read. And he would just get into rapport with people and found some miraculous things happen when you, you do that. And, um, so, and what I found, well, uh, well, there's one thing I remember with my father that, you know, unfortunately I have some regrets because at the time I was writing things down, but of course I didn't have the perspective I do now after years of doing this research. So one day my father said to me, um, he had a pencil and he was putting it like pointing to his tummy and he said, he said, I'm trying to get it to the other side. I'm trying to get the pencil to the other side. And, of course, uh, I didn't want I mean, he was dying, but, of course, I didn't want him to hurt himself, right? And so I took the pencil, and I was, I was almost punitive, and I feel badly. I said, Dad, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. You know, but this time I would say, oh, let me see the pencil. Let me help you get it to the other side, Papa. What are we going to find on the other side together? You know, if I had really engaged him in that conversation, not only would I have invited him into a conversation or, or, or met him where he was, but I may have also profited, is that the right word, that benefited in terms of learning what the other side was about. What a curious thing. I'm still thinking, oh, darn, I wish I, I had asked him what he meant by that. Hmm. You know, it strikes me as, as I'm listening to this that Yes, dying people do seem to live in two worlds, and many times children seem to live in two worlds, and schizophrenics seem to live in two Uh, worlds. But, you know, most of us actually have that experience almost daily in our dream states, in our hypnagogic states, coming in and out of uh, various spaces. It may well be that uh, there, there is another world that is so very close to us. Uh, it's really something we're intimately connected with all the time, but we don't notice it. I agree, and we know that dreams um, tend to be very metaphorical, right? I mean, we know that. And um, I was speaking with someone recently who is in the dying process and um, or approaching it, and um, he was telling me he was beginning to have dreams about. Uh, his mother, but that they were still dreams, uh, that they, they were clearly, 
he knew that when he woke up in the morning, he had a dream. And one of the things that I've noticed, or it seems to me that as people get closer to the threshold, that distinction between dream time and what we call real time, um, that distinction begins to shift because he was saying uh, this guy was very self-aware and that was part of who he is as a person. He said, How, what do you think about that means? How soon am I going to die? He was curious. And I said, I'm not an expert. I'm not a medical expert. But my sense is when you are aware that you're having the dream, you're not fully yet living in it. But there are exceptions to that, definitely. There are people who are fully aware of their dream states and can move in and out of dream time and uh, real time very close to the threshold. So, you know, there are so many exceptions, and I do not, I'm not at all uh, expert in the medical aspects and so forth. But, but I do think dream time and real time, I think there's real overlap here. And I agree. I, I agree that um, many of us are living in more states than we may know. Raymond Moody's schema for different levels, more than 80 different types of nonsense, points out that some forms of nonsense actually are, based on the rules that they have to follow, more complex than normal language. Yes, because um, because what nonsense does is it breaks the rules that are already established, right? So you have so it's a nonsense acts as if it knows what the rules are in order that it breaks them consistently. And what we don't know, when I was gathering data for this project, and I still am by the way, um, I'll give my website later if anyone has any accounts they'd like to contribute. But we put out the request for nonsensical language. And yet there's such a nonsense taboo, as Raymond calls it, that people still think they almost don't hear nonsense. <laughs> they almost don't hear it. So we have still a relatively small percentage of our samples is technically linguistic nonsense. We have what I call situational nonsense, where people say there's an angel in the room with me, and it's like, no, there isn't. You know, you're in a hospital room. There's no angels here. There's a fair amount of that kind of nonsense. But the pure linguistic nonsense, such as, um, well, my dad said this, uh, um, my modality is broken, or this doll needs a roofing, which is really nonsensical. Um, we have much less of that in our data still, even though that was what our hope was. So for those who are listening, um, if you have heard that kind of language or have any opportunity to collect it for us, we would be so grateful. But the truth is um, we have begun to see patterns, but really not enough data to, for me to look at you and say conclusively what those patterns are. But mm. we do know that they exist. Yeah. Or we do believe, I should say. We yeah. do think they exist. Well, I uh, fortunately took Raymond Moody's seminar on the wisdom of did. nonsense. Oh, yes, I, I did. It's about ten, nearly a decade ago. Uh, I know he's been working on this for a very long time, and he has a very sophisticated model about the relationship between nonsense and what we think of as as the afterlife. Uh, I mean, for example, lots of songs are based on nonsense, like, 
like, uh, hey, nanny, 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 hey, nanny, nanny, <laughs> no. Uh, you, you hear things like that in, in music all the time. And uh, they speak to us because there's sort of an emotion underlying uh, those things, especially if there's a melody. Yes. And, you know, we remember the things... It seems that nonsense can kind of confuse the rational mind. I think Erickson also talked about this in hypnotherapy. I've heard that really good hypnotists will sometimes infuse nonsense into their suggestions to kind of confuse the rational mind so that suggestions can be more deeply embedded. And then I also think that's true with music. Right. You know, you've got the nonsense and then somehow the thing that makes sense sticks a little more. <laughs> hey, la, hey, la, my boyfriend's back. <laughs> you know, and you remember your boyfriend and you know, the boyfriend's back. Yeah. So nonsense has a really powerful function. And if you even look at Dr. Seuss, you know, so many of the things that are nonsensical are things um, that stay with us, that stay with us. So, you know, that's fascinating to me. Um and, and Raymond, really, yeah, it'll be great. I think you'll be speaking to him soon. I was so excited because uh, Llewellyn Publishing will be publishing. Finally, we found a publisher for Making Sense of Nonsense. Mm. And, you know, even though it's relatively academic, it's still very, very accessible. And I'm so excited that it will be out there in the next year and a half or so. Well, you know, one of my reasons for paying a lot of attention to Raymond's work on nonsense and the idea that there, each different type of nonsense has its own logic is because uh, many people think that uh, we can account for an afterlife based on the mathematics of higher dimensions of space. And, and it turns out that that mathematics uh, there are many different uh, higher dimensions of space, and, and they all have their own logical rules, just like the different types of nonsense do. So it's occurred to me there might be some kind of uh, isomorphic mapping of different types of nonsense to different types of hyperspace, so we could begin to get, a, if this were the case, a very precise understanding of uh uh, how consciousness works, the different states uh, of consciousness that we can go into. Uh, and I, I think an important step okay. that you took in that direction in your book is you begin to refer to the work of people like Andrew Newberg in neurotheology and how yes, he's looking... I love his work. He, he's looking at different states of consciousness that people put themselves into through various religious disciplines, like speaking in tongues. How does speaking in tongues affect the brain? How does meditation and different varieties of meditation each affect the brain? So you're, you're looking at almost the same question linguistically. Yes, and I will, oh, I hope you can create a think tank to pursue some of the things you said, because I find them so exciting, and if I could be involved in any way, I'd be honored, because I think, wow, what an exciting puzzle. But anyway, um, yes, Andrew, I love Andrew Newber's work. It uh, really dovetails with what I've been doing, and his work with glossolalia showed that when people were speaking in tongues, which is uh, considered, you know, it's technically nonsense, gibberish. Um, when I when we look at glossolalia, it corresponds with the phonetic structure of the native language. 
So it, it, it's more consistent with the native language. There's not just one language that goes across different languages. Does that make sense? So, but what it does, it has the power, what Newberg shows that the, the glossolalia has the power to activate parts of um, our brains that are more associated with mystical experience and maybe even music. Whereas if someone's reading a book aloud, very different parts of the brain are activated. And, you know, there's been this traditional uh, distinction between those who who believe in a non-local, con- I don't like, I shouldn't even use the word believe, but think about consciousness in terms of being non-local and then, uh, and then Newberg's work, you know, that is actually looking at the brain um, more locally, right, because it's looking at what's going on. But for me, I think they're very much connected. It's just the brain is sort of a, uh, uh, um, a tool, you know, it's like it's there are different passages for consciousness. Does, does that make sense? So I, I think of consciousness out here, but it just comes through different parts of the brain. So I don't see the two at, at all in conflict at all. And it does seem that when people are dying, the part that we call that are more that is usually more associated with um, mystical experience and and something like lasalalia, which would technically be considered nonsense, those parts of the brain seems to be more activated or more alive based on the language. And I asked. Um, Andrew Newberg, if he thought that I was off base, and he said, "Well, it's certainly an interesting idea. We don't have, we haven't done the scans, but it could be that a certain consciousness is being filtered more and more through a different part of our brain, and that we're actually hardwired for transcendental experience at the end of life, because the other parts of the brain that control more literal language." Are, are not, don't seem to be functioning in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're generalizing because there are people with very lucid language to the very last moment and mm-hmm. so forth. But for a percentage of people where that's the case, it might be that we're hardwired. Now, some people don't speak at all. There's a large percentage of people where there's no language at the end of life. Many people, so we're talking about this window of time, um, you know, three weeks or for some more, it's longer. But there definitely are shifts. And, and someone like Andrew Newberg is a wonderful uh, partner, I think, in this exploration. Mm-hmm. Now, I also want to come back to uh, your childhood memory of your father singing lullabies to you. And I'm, okay. sure, I'm, I'm sure many children have memories like that because as you described it in your book, you, you also refer to the whole process by which young children – infants, actually, I suppose, and toddlers acquire language. And I, I think we could learn a great deal from uh, about consciousness from how language is, is acquired. You mentioned, for example, that uh, an infant has the possibility of speaking well over a hundred different phonemes. More, way more. Yes, uh-huh. yes, 800. Yes, exactly. And then as we learn our native language, that is, it's the brain seems to sort of gel. And so it becomes harder and harder to master. Not, I mean, with time, it gets harder and harder to master the phonemic structure. But we come in with the capability to produce hundreds. And you, within six months, so in our case, there are 40-plus phonemes that we master. So it seems we come in with this limitless you know, we although we're not speaking, we have this limitless potential. And then as our personalities, identities, cultural and individual um, crystallize, um, so does the language capacity and function 
um, and, and, and the sounds that we produce and recognize. And of course, the window for learning second languages continues throughout our life. And, you know, until you know, when we're younger, we still have you know, the ability to um, produce accents of second languages and third languages and fourth languages. But there is this increasing kind of crystallization of language um, as, as we develop mm. and acquire our first and second languages, third mm. languages sometimes. Yeah. I mean, language is an incredibly powerful tool, but it can also serve as, as kind of a constraint on people if you're limited to the, the phonemes, meaning the sounds that are mm-hmm. uh, available in that language. You uh, often have a hard time pronouncing the sounds of other languages, which is why people have accents. Exactly, exactly. And that's why kids hear those things early and on within this certain frame. And there's been some, there's been controversy about what exactly it is. There's a frame of time. But what is, uh, or the research that I've seen is pretty conclusive, is by six months, we're already are getting programmed to the, you know, to the phonemes that is their primary. And there are people who are bilingual, trilingual. Um, and but so it's amazing the way the brain works that that, that can um, create the structures so that we recognize and respond to those phonemes. You know, in the near death experience and in other kinds of mystical experiences, people often report that they encounter what could be deceased relatives, it could be angelic beings such as the ones your father described, and they communicate with them. But typically, when they describe this communication, they talk about it as being almost or maybe actually telepathic, that it's not the use of words. So there's this interesting distinction between communicating with language versus communicating very profound and intense ideas, but without the use of language. Yes, and going back to what we talked about, childhood um, communication, uh, Jeffrey Lay and Jean Metzger did research on communication between children and adults, and, and, and parents particularly. And what they found, as we all sort of know intuitively, is that parents and children generally almost seem to have a telepathic connection. Um, you know, when we're babies, we can't really say, mommy, I got to, you know, you know all this. We, we know, we start recognizing certain cries in certain ways, but there are also those kind of hunches we have about what our children need and so forth. So that very, you know, it's possible it's possible that we come into this world with sort of a highly attuned telepathic sense you know, as babies. Who knows? That I'm not sure. But it does seem that that same non-linguistic communication, Evelyn Alexander described as non-linguistic communication during the near-death experience. And it could be we begin our lives that way and then we end our lives that way. Um, and there's certainly just, if you imagine this, so there's a beauty in that, right? Sort of the, the full circle of it. But I also know, and this stunned me when I did my research, how many nurses asking for confidentiality took me aside and said, this may sound really strange, but when I work with my patients in hospice or in the hospital, I swear I hear them speaking to me and letting me know when they're close to dying and what they need or when I should call the family members or so forth. And one nurse was actually 
the doctors would go to her because she had such an ability or an affinity to be so, what seemed to be telepathically connected to her patients. And, um, and I was surprised because I never imagined in a medical environment I would hear that or that such a thing even existed. And um, it does seem that the closer we are to the threshold at either side of the lifespan, the more this thing we call telepathy begins to appear. And we know we share death experiences. How many times have I heard from people, from my research and also anecdotally, I knew that my mother had died. You know, I was off and I was in my car to work and I just had this feeling. It was, and I could hear her saying something to me. So it, I have come to also believe, we were talking about many forms of languages, metaphor and nonsense. I would have not said this to you six years ago or seven years ago, but I'm saying it to you now. I would definitely, as someone who loves language, put telepathy <laughs> <laughs> under the com- you know category of communication. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, I would go so far, Lisa, <laughs> as to suggest that in a conversation like this, uh, where we're we're sharing words are going back and forth between us, but I think the reason that language works as well as it does, I mean, if I speak rapidly, you can't even tell where one word begins and another word ends. Uh, it's because there is the the language is like the carrier wave for a telepathic connection, so that the meaning is communicated. I love that. One of the things I've noticed over time is even though I studied linguistics, I'm not what they call a polyglot. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. speak tons of different languages or anything, but I do speak Spanish and I'm bilingual. But I have noticed with Spanish or French, the other languages I speak a bit, that if I have the same wavelength, you know, if just someone and I have rapport emotionally and personally, I understand their language better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've noticed that over time, you know, with some people, I am absolutely fluent with my second and third languages because we have that connection you're talking about with others. It's as if I cannot make heads or tails. And, you know, sometimes it's even true with our primary language. Have you ever had that experience <laughs> of speaking with someone who speaks English? And it's as if you are speaking two different languages. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I agree that has yeah. been my experience as well. Well, there's one other issue I'd like to discuss with <laughs> you, and I, I know Raymond has done some uh, writing in in this area, and it has to do with, uh, what would you call it, an induced near-death experience. That is, as your loved one is dying. Maybe you experience this with your father and they, they are passing that the, the people in their company, uh, kind of go along with them for part of that journey and understand, uh, actually experience with them what it's like. Yes. Uh, Raymond calls it the shared death experience. Yeah. And he writes about it in his book on glimpses of eternity. Mm-hmm. And I had a shared death experience with my father. So it was a very real thing to me once, you know, when I uh, reread some of Raymond's books. Um, my father was living in Berkeley, where I went to school, Berkeley, California, and I was living in Napa. Mm-hmm. And at 3.15 in the morning, I woke up and I had this sense that the room was thick with presence. 
you know that feeling when you know someone's in the room with you even though all the lights are out or something? It was as if there were people in the room with me, but the only person in that room was my husband who was sleeping next to me. And I remember looking at the red light of the digital clock. It said 3.15. And I woke up my husband. I said, there's something going on right now. Maybe my dad's dying or something because I'm feeling I'm 70 miles away, but something is going on. They were back to that telepathic thing we were talking about a moment ago, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt something, and then of course uh, my husband's like, "It's all fine, honey. You know, you'll, you'll if you if you were dying right now, or if you were, you know, if he had passed on, you would have heard from me, Mom. Go back to sleep." So at three twenty-six, I look on the clock, back to sleep. The next day, I traveled to Berkeley as I did every day after work to be with my father, and I said, "Hey, Mom." Uh, so how's dad? She said, well, he's fine, but the strangest thing happened. At 3.15, he woke up and he said to me, the room is so crowded. There's so many people here. I don't have time to talk to all these people. And we know from David Kessler and the other researchers that this, uh, that this experience of having crowded rooms is common for those who are dying. They talk about it. However, here I was in Napa, California, my dad down the road in Berkeley. At the same time, we had this shared experience some people, and this was a, a, a little while before he passed on, I, I want to say maybe 10 days, I might be off in the exact timing, but we hear stories of people actually at the time of death might see a spirit rising, you know, see something or a light, or they may feel it. There are multiple ways. Some people have even reported sharing the life review of the person, seeing around them flashes of um of life events that have occurred with the loved ones. So uh, right now, William Peters, who is in Santa Barbara, a therapist uh, at a place called Shared Crossings, is writing a book. He's done some really excellent research on shared death experiences, categorizing the types of mm-hmm. them. And so we'll be hearing more about this. But Raymond was the first. uh, (laughs) Raymond is quite a pioneer, a very important original thinker. Uh, I do know with regard to light experiences, there's a famous one, the musician George Harrison. When he died, his wife Olivia uh, said the room was so bright that if you had had a, a camera, you would have been able to photograph it. Ooh, I get tingles. Yeah. Wow. And and George Harrison was a person who whose goal was to die consciously. That Oh, he, wow. That was very important to him. I didn't realize that. And I have yeah. tingles. What a beautiful story. I'd love to find out more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let before we go, this is so enjoyable this conversation. Yeah. May I Thank share you. with you an experience I had um, with my grandfather? Mm-hmm. I would love it. He, he was, he was, this was in the year of his death. He was very old, but he, you know, it wasn't, he, he wasn't dead, but he was, or even dying at the time, but he was experiencing dementia. And it was a nonsensical conversation, but at the same time, very lucid. And uh, he said to me that he's invented a new word. He, he said the word is illions. He said, not millions, not billions, but illions. And then he said, uh, when I die, he said, that's where I'll be. He said, I'll be illions, oh. uh, illions away from you. He said, but then he said, it doesn't matter. 
how far away I am. He said, if you ever want to be with me, what you have to do, and he did this literally, he took his finger and he kind of scratched or rubbed the palm of my hand. He said, if you ever need me, that's all you do is just rub the palm of your hand Mm. like that. Yeah, beautiful story. Totally absurd and totally meaningful at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And that's the realm of poetry and myth, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. And how, you know, how deeply touching, what a deeply touching story, you know, and and we all, I mean, I don't know him, but I got it too, right? I understood it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, beautiful story. It reminds me when my father, he looked up at me. And he said, Lisa, there's so much so in sorrow. (laughs) So much so. (laughs) In sorrow, Uh, right? It doesn't make sense, but just like your story, and I love the hand. The hands become so important at end of life. This is something else Mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed and heard, but... My father, too, was, you know, he reached up as he was passing on, as people often do. There's a reaching up in those very last hours often. Yeah. But I love that. That's beautiful. And so much so in sorrow, just like Ilians, these are nonsensical phrases and words that are deeply meaningful to us. So as loved ones, there's a whole level of communication Especially if we can, you know, feel it through the heart when we're connecting with the people we really care about. Mm-hmm. Well, what this work highlights to me is the the importance of metaphor, the importance of poetry, yeah. the importance of seeing things uh, differently than this sort of mechanistic, logical, rational, scientific way that we sometimes think. Uh, nothing is truthful or factual if it can't be measured scientifically. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and I'm a big believer in the scientific method. Me too. I agree. <laughs> exactly. It's all true, right? Mm. It's all true. Well, Lisa, I think you're doing very important work. It's uh, a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I know that uh, Raymond Moody has suggested that in the future, many doctoral dissertations will be written based on this line of research that you're opening up, and and I'm inclined to agree with him. So thank you so much for being with me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you very much, Jeff. (laughs) Thank you.